theoretically, South Africa is required to arrest President Putin should he attend the BRICS summit in August in South Africa and then transfer him to the ICC. That is the black letter of the law. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. One of the debates I've been following, and I'm sure you are as well, Steph, is around the potential arrest of the Russian President Vladimir Putin when he could be visiting South Africa in August this year. Why don't you, Stephopedia, us in terms of what's the context here? Uh, there is going to be a fifth BRICS summit, and BRICS are Brazil, India, China, and also South Africa. It will be held in Johannesburg uh, late August, uh, but there is a warrant out for the arrest of Vladimir Putin by the International Criminal Court, as we covered also on this podcast before. South Africa is an ICC member. So they would be obliged to arrest Putin for uh, this arrest warrant, which charges him with potentially being guilty of crimes of forcible transfer of children from Ukraine to Russian territory. I'm sure we'll get into the detail of the extent to which he uh, he would have to be uh, arrested. So uh, let's see whether your, your statement holds true when we've uh, spoken to our experts. For me, it's all very reminiscent, sort of thinking back to, I think it was 2015, which feels like an incredibly long time ago, when the then Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, was visiting South Africa and all the legal arguments and the political sort of drama was going on at the time, which then after seemed to get more discussed at the ICC. But there was a whole load of noise then. So, I mean, apart from what you've just explained to start with, Steph, what are the different bits that are already starting to cause confusion around this? Well, after we had the arrest warrant issued for Putin, uh, we already saw the one thing on the horizon because Putin doesn't travel very much. The one thing where potentially he could be entangled with this obligation that ICC states have to cooperate with the court uh, when he visits uh, South Africa. Now, we already had reaction to this. Uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, speaking as the president of the ANC uh, in April, said that his party would push the government to withdraw from the ICC. But that was uh, that statement was hastily backpaddled. There's been loads of other bits and pieces off there. It feels to me that we're at the stage where every single person wants to make a statement every day. Um, so maybe we won't go into every single bit, but it, it looks like there's a huge discussion going on. So that's why I thought it'd be interesting to get a couple of lawyers who've got the South African connection uh, to help to explain us the legal detail behind the debate. And um, we have uh, Alan Angari. Uh, hi, Alan. Hey, how are you? Nice to be on your show. Lovely to have you here. Uh, Alan's uh, Africa Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, and he's previously been at the Centre for Study of Violence and Reconciliation and also at uh, ISS in uh, South Africa. And we have Hannah Wolliver, Associate Professor in International Law at the Public Law Department of the University of Cape Town. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. So we thought we'd start off with um, a sketch from both of you of what you think the big issues are, what's at stake here. So kick off with you, Hannah, what's going on? 
So from the South African perspective, the issue is really whether South Africa is willing or able to comply with its arrest obligations as a member of the ICC. We've seen that previously it struggled with this obligation with Bashir, as you mentioned, and the same situation is coming up again with Putin. So the question is whether South Africa is really comfortable with the scope of obligations that the court is imposing in terms of arrest, particularly against sitting heads of state. And we've seen that South Africa has resisted the execution of these arrest warrants, but then also quickly that that has flown into the issue of whether South Africa will remain a member of the court as well. So it's a question not only of these immediate obligations to arrest, but really an existential question in terms of South Africa's continued uh, allegiance to and membership of the court. And Alan, how would you frame it? You know, I was uh, listening very recently to the BRICS ministers of foreign affairs and international relations uh, who were meeting in Cape Town. And I heard the South African minister describe our world as uh, one that's fractured by competition, geopolitical inequality and deteriorating global security. And, you know, listening to to, to Minister Pando speak, and uh, it is it is indeed true that this is the world that we're living in. Her Indian counterpart was echoing these very sentiments, talking about concentrations of economic power, which leaves too many nations at the mercy of a few. Now, obviously, India, Russia, China are not part of their own statute. They do not have obligations to arrest uh, President Putin if the summit happens in, in, in their countries, but South Africa and Brazil are. And just like Hannah has said, uh, South African courts determined in 2015 that South Africa has an obligation to arrest um, Omar al-Bashir and transfer him to the ICC. So theoretically, South Africa is required to arrest President Putin should he attend the BRICS summit in August in South Africa and then transfer him to the ICC. That is the black letter of the law. But it's very surprising that uh, Minister Pando talks about waiting to get a legal opinion around this matter. You know, what are the legal options there? Um, you know, she said that ultimately the president, uh, Ramaphosa, is going to make the ultimate decision on what the position is. Uh, but, you know, this decision has already been made. Um, it was made in 2015. The courts were very clear in South Africa that there is an obligation uh, to, to, to arrest. So it feels to me that there is yet another time opportunity for the executive to to act ultra-bias its powers. It's going beyond its powers. And just like last time, it took the course to rein the executive in as it was trying to withdraw from the ICC statute. So we are back in that same position. Um, but this is this is not an easy, it's not an easy position at all, uh, I would imagine, for the South African government. And what we saw this time and what we saw last time with al-Bashir is that there's a lot of argument from South Africa that in order to play a diplomatic role or to mediate, they should get extra leeway not to have to arrest people who are under ICC arrest warrant. This was one of the arguments for al-Bashir that if they want to play a role as the African Union has, they should be able to invite who they want for this for these summits. Now, uh, there is again a kind of defensive, we want to hold these diplomatic events and therefore we should be able to offer this diplomatic immunity. Uh, how do you feel that, that that argument holds up here, both of you? 
Well, I think if we look at the traditional justifications that international law gives immunity, is, is, it's precisely that. It's that immunity ratione personae, or personal immunity, is necessary in order to conduct the smooth functioning of international relations. So I think that's very much a traditional invocation of why international law does give immunity to certain state leaders, including the head of state. So then the question is, well, does that immunity legally persist when the ICC has given an arrest warrant. Um, and so I think South Africa is correct to say that international law recognizes that state leaders have to be able to travel to other states, have to be able to have diplomatic engagements in order to maintain international peace and security and in order to further international peace and security. And that, of course, gives rise to the clash that we've seen between the traditional view of immunity under international law and what the ICC is now doing in terms of the issuing of arrest warrants against current heads of state, and particularly heads of state of states that have not signed up to the Rome Statute. So the question is, does that traditional immunity still exist in the era of the ICC, and how are states' parties having to deal with trying to balance those potentially clashing obligations. That's um, absolutely true. You know, the the question about uh, immunities was certainly front and center when al-Bashir was coming to South Africa for the 2015 summit of the African Union. It certainly is still one of the, the, the biggest questions that we have to address in this proposed visit by President Putin to South Africa again. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, um, and, but I'm, I'm sure and I'm absolutely certain that the constitution is a grand norm in any country. It is the final say on, on applicability of, of laws. And the South African constitution is also very clear on the application of international law. And it says, as it relates to customary international law, and, and this is particularly useful for us to discuss um, in relation to immunities from the perspective of a customary international law obligation um, to allow heads of state to, to, to visit other countries to conduct the business of the state. But the, the, the Constitution of South Africa says that if customary international law is inconsistent with the Constitution itself or an act of parliament, then it is inapplicable. And we can give many arguments around uh, immunity and its application here in South Africa. But here we have uh, an implementation act of the Rome Statute of the ICC that very clearly takes out official immunity uh, from any person. And, and that regardless of that immunity, the court will still have jurisdiction. Um, and so that is really the position um, that South Africa would not be able to enjoy the comforts of providing this immunity or ensuring this immunity to heads of state who are um, indicted, who have an arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court. Again, it's the black letter of the law, and that is what that is what it says. Certainly, there are different interpretations of, of the law, but this is my reading of both the domestic law and interpreting international law. Do you agree, Hannah? I think that, to be fair to the South African government, the issue is more complicated and perhaps more contested than we would like it to be. I think, obviously, there are two levels of obligation going on here. There's the Rome Statute itself, and then there's the South African legislation that implements the Rome Statute. If we look at the Rome Statute, there's a lot of debate about how the different provisions of the statute interact 
Um, there's a clear denial of immunity in relation to states that are a party to the Rome Statute. I would agree that that extends to situations where the Security Council has referred the matter to the ICC, as was the case in Bashir. But here we're dealing with a new situation, which is when the ICC issues an arrest warrant against a sitting head of state that is not a party to the Rome Statute and where there has been no Security Council referral. Now, the ICC Appeals Chamber has said that even in that new situation, there is no immunity that applies. However, a number of international lawyers would argue that that seems to run counter to another important provision of the Rome Statute, which is Article 98. And I think it's likely that given the controversial nature of the appeals chamber's decision that was in the Jordan non-compliance hearing, and the fact that the ICC does not operate on the basis of a strict system of precedent, that we're likely to see this issue relitigated before the ICC. Because it, it is the first time that the ICC has issued an arrest warrant in this particular situation. And it does lead to complicated questions of treaty interpretation that I don't think we can say have been finally resolved. In terms of the South African legislation, again, I'm not sure that the black letter is quite as clear as, as Alan has, has said. We have a decision of the Supreme Court of Appeal that has made very strong findings uh, in line with what Alan has said, but I do think, again, there, there is some room for debate about the actual text of the legislation. I wanted to just simplify because there's a lot of ICC lingo and ICC cases came in here and I'm not sure all of our listeners have all of the cases at their fingertips. But what Hannah is talking about is that Jordan also did not arrest Omar al-Bashir at some point and started a procedure at the ICC because they said they were right not to arrest him. And then there was a decision that no, they should have arrested him. But again, as she points out, one of the things in that decision was that they also pointed out that the Sudan case was a referral from the UN Security Council, which made it also then not only an ICC case, but like an extra, it's not a member state, but it was it was referred by the Security Council. And in the Russia situation, we have something different where Ukraine is not even a member, but it's put out a declaration accepting the jurisdiction of the court and Russia is definitely not a member and doesn't uh, recognize the court. So, so this is something that they could litigate again. So we are not entirely 100% sure. This is not necessarily the exact same cookie cutter situation. So they might, yes, look at this again. I just wanted to pull us also out to one of the kind of political sides of this uh, discussion, not the internal South African one, but but the still saying at the bigger picture. We saw just recently President Macron of France seeming to suggest that maybe Putin wouldn't be arrested again in order to enable negotiations to go on for peace in the end. And I'm wondering, Alan, whether you you look at something like that and you think, how double standard can the international community get that there's all this pressure on South Africa to conform with its obligations, et cetera, et cetera. And then you suddenly get this, you know, France has obligations as well, but you suddenly say France saying, oh, well, maybe we can just ignore an arrest warrant. I mean, it really looks quite, as I suggest, double standard. 
Indeed, uh, and that's actually the appropriate um, word, double standards in international justice. And and we've seen this time and time again, um, and particularly as it relates to the African continent. And this was uh, right at the center of discussions years ago around the application of the arrest warrants um, for, for Omar al-Bashir. But once again, we find ourselves so unlucky. The South African government is always at the center of all this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some quarters of the international community are using international rules when it suits them only. In fact, this is a position that the South African government has been very vocal about uh, in, in, in this uh, run up to, to the summit in, in August. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very much the same position, in my opinion, um, that the South Africans are taking, saying um, that they themselves will will see which obligations under the Rome Statute uh, would suit them. Um, it, it's very clear, you know, we can debate uh, the different circumstances between the, the, um, the referral by the Security Council in the situation in Darfur and this particular one uh, related to, to, to Ukraine. Uh, and yes, I agree that litigation would be important. Uh, the courts would need to pronounce themselves. Uh, very clearly on it at the international level, at the, the International Criminal Court, but also in the South African courts themselves. But at the end of the day, South Africa is a part of this legal order, and there is this obligation that is quite clear to arrest any person in its territory who has an outstanding uh, arrest warrant. But the question of uh, of double standards is something that I think we need to ventilate a bit a bit more. It's uh, it's 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 emerging. Um, and, and more and more, the global South particularly finds itself caught in between what South Africa is currently in. You know, these these obligations and these statements around um, you need to do what is right in the international law. But then, as you alluded to the statement uh, from President Macron, that um, perhaps wouldn't would be useful for the peace uh, process and negotiations. These are the very same arguments that the African Union put forward years ago when um, when, when the situation in Darfur was tense and uh, the former president, al-Bashir, was said to be an important interlocutor in the peace process in that country. But yet there was this very strong and stern uh, statements that came from the global north, um, particularly around African states. Um, he did not only travel to South Africa, he was in Kenya, he was in Uganda, he was in quite a number of African countries, which are parties to the, to their own statute. So to hear that certain countries in the global north are saying that, you know, possibly let's allow Putin to be part of, of those, um, of negotiations. It's 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 wrong. It's simple as uh, and clear that it is wrong. You cannot put um, the global South countries in a difficult position. Um, and and years ago, you were not willing to listen to those arguments. I think we must just be very clear what the law says. And all countries have an uh, an the sovereign right to be part of or not part of treaties. And if they find that this is not suitable to to how they want to run their government and engage with other countries and, and processes and in a multilateral system, they have every right then to, to step aside from those treaties that create obligations that they're not happy with. Coming in on the double standards question, I mean, I think it's important to note that different countries have domesticating legislation that varies from the South African legislation as well. And while South African courts thus far have made a very strong statement that there's no immunity applicable whether to 
domestic prosecutions of international crimes or the execution of ICC arrest warrants. That's not the case for all ICC member states. So even if we look at the UK's domesticating legislation, for instance, that would, at least as I read it, provide immunity to Putin in terms of the execution of an ICC arrest warrant. It seems to say that in the case of states not party to the Rome Statute, where there is no Security Council referral, immunity persists. And that, of course, is exactly what South Africa, in this case, the executive, is arguing contrary to its own domestic legislation. So again, this question of whether South Africa has an absolute obligation to arrest is one that we have to see in the context of, well, how have other ICC member states reacted? We've seen the president of France saying, perhaps we don't need to arrest him. We see the UK legislation, which doesn't seem to have at least a domestic obligation to execute the ICC arrest warrant in this case. So South Africa is not necessarily alone in having some hesitation about whether they can lawfully arrest Putin in this situation. How do you think we're going to see this playing out in South Africa? I understand that there is there's obviously a lot of debate around it. There are legal processes. I mean, if we just focus on what will happen within South Africa, what should we be watching for, Hannah? So the first thing that has to happen is that a request has to be made to the South African government to execute the arrest warrant. And that we know has been done. So they, a public statement has been made that a request has been made to the South African government. And that triggers a legislative process in which there's really no room for the executive to interfere. The domestic legislation makes it mandatory for that ICC arrest warrant to now be endorsed domestically, which then means it has to be executed uh, within South Africa's territory. And as we've said, the law then denies the application of any immunity to Putin if he does come to South Africa as it stands. So that means that really that process has uh, gone beyond the executive's power to uh, stop the execution of the arrest warrant unless something else is done, unless they amend the legislation or unless an appellate court provides a new interpretation of the domestic legislation, perhaps providing for immunity. But as it stands, the clear domestic law obligation is to execute that ICC arrest warrant, and the clear international law obligation is also to execute that ICC arrest warrant. So just ignore the noise that we that we hear and just, you know, see what happens. Well, as we saw with Bashir, of course, the existence of clear legal obligation does not mean that it will actually play out that way on the ground. So we may see uh, Putin being bundled out of the country, as Bashir was under the cloak of uh, misinformation being provided by the government. From my side, the ideal situation would simply for Putin not to come to South Africa, hold the summit elsewhere, have him appear on Zoom. You can mute him if you want to, you know, uh, but having him visit will, I think, result in a direct clash between what the executive wants to happen and what the legal obligation is. And that did not go well for South Africa last time that happened. I was wondering if we can see the same thing with Putin, because what you're saying now is it seems to be everything has already been hashed out in court. Uh, with al-Bashir, and we have that arrest warrant and that triggers that the executive will have to do something. In the case of al-Bashir, you kind of saw that they could then later take it to court and argue over it later at the ICC. So do you see a scenario where they do the same with Putin? They let him come, they don't arrest him, and then they kind of wait for 
whatever will happen, because even the last time when they didn't arrest al-Bashir, as we know, the ICC has no real way to enforce these things that, you know, at worst, they get a slap on the wrist from the UN Security Council or the uh, Assembly of State Parties. So there's no real consequence to not arresting them. So do you think they could take the gamble and then say, we want this legislated because legally the situation is slightly different than it was with al-Bashir? Yeah, there are, I think, two issues here that are still in play. The first is that the government has granted an immunity to attendance of the BRICS summit under the Diplomatic Immunities and Privileges Act. The government has said, or at least the spokesperson for the foreign office, essentially the foreign office, has said that this has nothing to do with Putin and it doesn't override the ICC arrest warrant. And while that may be true, it is also true that they have legislated an immunity for those who are attending the BRICS summit. So they tried to do that with Bashir in 2015. They gave an immunity for those who were attending the AU summit, and then the government tried to rely on that immunity to justify their failure to arrest Bashir. So I don't see why they wouldn't make the same argument in this case. The Supreme Court of Appeal in relation to Bashir said that the way that the immunity for the AU summit had been legislated by its terms didn't apply to heads of state, and therefore it didn't apply to Bashir. But the court never said it couldn't apply to Bashir or it couldn't apply to those who were subject to an ICC arrest warrant. So I don't see why one argument could not be made that this immunity applies to Putin, he's attending the BRICS summit, and therefore he's immune from arrest under that legislative provision. The second thing to note in this case is that, again, of course, the Security Council won't get involved in sanctioning any failure to arrest Putin for a couple of reasons. The first is that it doesn't have the jurisdiction to do so under the Rome Statute because it didn't refer this situation. And the second, of course, is that Russia has a, a veto over any Security Council resolution as a permanent member of the Council. So there are even fewer modes to punish South Africa's failure to execute an ICC arrest warrant in this case than there were in the Bashir case as well. Alan, this all sounds quite clear, but again, kind of going back to the whole debates that went on around Bashir uh, several years ago, is it possible, do you think in the end, that this will push South Africa to leave the ICC and maybe, again, other countries might reassess their relationship? As I mean, you've said, you know, every country is sovereign. They can decide which treaties to side up to and, and which not. Will this because they believe now potentially they live in a multipolarity and the ICC is too kind of pushing one way and South Africa wants the freedom to express itself and its foreign policy differently. Is, is that going to happen? You know, that's actually the big issue and discussion in South Africa from the people. Um, why are we still part of this court if we are always being put in these very difficult positions, which really um, it's, it's, it's an impossible task to ask the government to do? And, 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 you know, the, the statement that uh, the president had made a few weeks ago talking about South Africa is going to leave the court and that was retracted, um, it, it, it really is um, indicative of just the, the sort of fragile and 
position that the government finds itself in. There was a statement that was issued last year in December by the National Executive Council of the African National Congress, which is the ruling party in South Africa, um, to which uh, President Ramaphosa is uh, the president of that party, as well as the state. And, and the NEC was clear that South Africa will not withdraw from the Rome Statute of the ICC. And with that joining statements that um, it is time to look into the multilateral systems, and, and this is very much in line with the conversations around double standards, um, about uh, you know reform within institutions, multilateral uh, institutions, um, and, and how certain states are perceived as compared to others. And so it appears now that the position of South Africa is that they will remain and they will try and make the reform from the inside. That is something that they they also ultimately conceded to after they withdrew their withdrawal request uh, from their own statute a few years ago. So that is what we understand the position to be right now. And, and you know, it's it's uh, for me, um, you know, talking about the the, the, the judicial process that would likely lead to a decision uh, very similar to 2015 that uh, the government um, has uh, an obligation to to arrest uh, President Putin. But the issue is the the execution of of such a decision uh, by the judicial authorities, which lands back to the hands of the executive. Uh, and and so, will the South African Police Service? Um, be be in a position, be able to to implement uh, the order of the court. The court itself certainly uh, will be relying on that enforcement mechanism. The ICC, as you pointed out, does not have an enforcement mechanism, but states do. Um, and and you know we've been hearing the political parties, um, the ANC, the ruling party, the Economic Freedom Front, um, the 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 opposition parties voicing their support for the visit and almost in a vigilante sort of statement saying that we will we will be by the side of president putin if he comes to ensure that he is not arrested of course um knowing the limitations that that he comes with his own security detail but in the event that um, <clears throat> they do want to, to arrest him that they will stand and and defend and prevent the the arrest and so that's the reality of you know when the rubber meets the road what does that court decision actually mean if it comes to the point where you have to execute it Will it actually happen on the ground? The public is not as convinced as we might be on that obligation to arrest. Um, there seems to be a lot still um, in, in the air around uh, the dissatisfaction with that whole process in the ICC. And is it only the dissatisfaction of the the ICC or a lot is also made of South Africa and especially the ANC's ties to the Soviet Union and the support it got in the apartheid? era and does that also tie into now the support for putin because looking at it from uh, western europe where everybody is kind of except possibly hungary very anti-putin and pro-ukraine to have this kind of party of uh, freedom fighters in our, our our minds from the 1990s saying we are going to support this guy uh, we'll even if he gets arrested uh, we will secure him uh, that that seems kind of odd can you explain why that popularity i'm reminded of the iconic moment uh, in the 90s when uh, uh, the late president nelson mandela and uh, and former president bill clinton were on stage together 
And he, uh, President uh, Mandela, was talking about the invitation to Fidel Castro um, to South Africa and uh, saying that these are the leaders, these are the countries that supported the fight against apartheid, that supported the ANC in its uh, very long battle against those that that were trying to, to put them down. And in the very same line, the Soviet Union and others as well that supported the ANC. Uh, and, and Mandela was saying in his presence that we will invite um, Fidel Castro. Um, he will come to South Africa in as much as the U.S. did not want um, Fidel Castro to, to come to South Africa. And it's a very similar argument that we are hearing. In fact, um, the, the foreign minister, Analedi Pando, has been equally vocal about this, talking about standing together with those countries standing together with those, um, you know, the lingo that is used, comrades that were in support of uh, of the ANC. Uh, and so, you know, it's 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 what is the narrative. And this is this is quite a strong one. I mean, with the struggle in South Africa against apartheid, you can imagine that it is not just only an, a legal issue, it has an emotive issue as well. And so those are the sentiments that are invoked in this in this debate. Um, and, and the Soviet Union was in support of the ANC. And again, then it's the whole double standards question again, where government in South Africa is saying, you you have not stood up against those powers today that are oppressing others just as we were oppressed in the back. And of course, relating this to the Palestinian issue. So that solidarity, that people-to-people -people solidarity is certainly something that is very strong in the ethos of the of the ANC and is a contributory factor to, to the debates around, uh, around this issue. Though I, I would say, from my perception, I think that there might be a distinction between solidarity from the ANC and the perspective of the South African people more generally. And I do think that there is more of a division in allegiance of the South African population. And I think there is a large portion of the South African population that is looking at the war and saying, this is an expression of colonialism and subjugation of a weak power. And Ukraine was also part of the USSR. And in fact, a lot of the um, support for the apartheid movement was located in what is now Ukrainian territory and not Russian territory. So while there is certainly a lot of identification of the ANC with the current Russian government. I'm not sure that it's so unified across the country as a whole. Also, I think within the ANC, we have seen divisions. We've seen, at least at the beginning of the war, that Naledi Pandor seemed to be veering towards criticizing the in invasion and then was quickly slapped down by the rest of the executive and then seem to fall in line. So I do think internally there are some divisions within the ANC and certainly within South Africa generally there are divided views on on what South Africa should be doing and who they should be allying themselves. When when you see conduct by a state and uh, and, and what they do, then we should really believe uh, the 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 sort of position that a state put itself in. So um, South Africa has been very clear that it is non-aligned um, in the in the invasion, uh, the Russian invasion in, in in Ukraine, and very recently we have seen um, the South African president um, put together what what he calls a peace mission of heads of state from African countries. To negotiate, or um, they went to Moscow, they went to Kiev, and the idea 
is essentially to to have a, a a negotiation, a discussion between the two the two parties. That in itself tells me um, what the position of the South African government is on this, and it's it's really a political uh, party position, which which would be the the ANC. So I think there is consensus um, within the Council of Ministers that the cabinet in in South Africa of the non-aligned position. But I just wanted to also touch on um, you know the perceived distance of the the, the, the invasion in, in Ukraine to the African, the plight of the African people. Um, and this was something that we, we saw, um, you know, uh, there's a sentiment that what's going on out there has nothing to do with us. We have our own problems in Africa. There are conflicts that are brewing. Uh, we are trying to handle a number of situations on the continent. We don't need to actually get involved in, in those issues, which it is incorrect because we live in a global order where we we're all interconnected and we are seeing now i mean we were all surprised last year to hear about the large imports of wheat that come from ukraine the gas that comes from russia into the african continent and how that certainly impacts on food security as well as other issues on the continent so it's it seems to be that that does not you know that that what what we need to be looking at is that that interconnected nature of of human beings. That what happens in Ukraine um, with the victims in Ukraine should be of concern to to Africans. In as much as what is happening in Sudan must be of concern to those in other parts of the world. So it's that symbiotic relationship that I think we need to find a balance uh, within the international system. Uh, this is not about who is superior and who is inferior, who is a greater power and who is not. Um, this situation points to the difficulties within the system, the international, the, the global system as it is. And we have to find the solutions that would be best for the, the people that are affected by the conflict. And, and I think this is what emerges to be one of the biggest um, lessons from the, the, the invasion uh, of, of Russia in, in Ukraine. I want to say thank you to both uh, Hannah and uh, Alan, because I think we've touched on so many different things here, both international law, what's actually going on internally in South Africa and the debates there, and also try to give it this bigger picture of uh, how the conflict in Ukraine is seen. Just before we end, we always try to ask one specific, very not connected to the podcast question. Maybe, Alan, you could kick off and then we can ask uh, Hannah. Is there anything that you've been reading recently or watching or listening to that you'd like to recommend to our audience? Ah, yes, for sure. You know, Africa is um, is, uh, is in my heart. Um, and, you know, I, I've been I've been reading uh, Chimamanda Adichie's Half of a Yellow Sun, uh, talking about the Biafran conflict. Obviously, we are seeing Nigeria has a new president now, but there are contestations in that country around sovereignty and secession and all that. And I thought it was a, a very wonderful depiction of the aspirations of a people to independence. And this is something that a lot of us can identify with, specifically those that come from minority groups. And, and so I found that it was a light way, um, still in touch with um, the hard issues in the ground, but from a lighter perspective um, from, from such an awesome author. And Hannah, is there anything that you can recommend? It can be uh, related to your job or international law, but also what you do to get away from the job and international law. Well, I obviously don't do very well at getting away from my job because what I've been recently reading is um, Thomas Bergenthal's memoir after he passed away this week, which I believe is called A Lucky Boy about his 
you know, being a child in Auschwitz and, and then becoming a judge of the International Court of Justice. And I think obviously that resonates with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, um, but it's also just an incredible personal story. So I can highly recommend that as well. Well, that gives us a nice segue uh, for our readers, uh, because that is one of the books that we have picked to read next on our Patreon book club. And the Patreon book club is for people who want to support our podcast. You can become a member and then you get once a month, you get us talking about a book related to war crimes and war criminals. And indeed, we also also the Twitter attributes to Thomas Bergenthal and decided that's a book that we should pick next time. So if you want to hear us talk about that in more detail, then go to Patreon and support us. So thank you very much and uh, goodbye to both of you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in The Hague. Music is by audionautics.com. And you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.